Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England when I was three years old, and I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. Well, actually, I'm just uh, taking care of a couple of uh, commission pieces right now that I'm finishing up yeah. uh, and getting those out of the way, preparing to um, work on a, a little book with a uh, character that I've been using recently called The uh, Littlest Plague Doctor. Oh, and yeah, I've seen those illustrations. They're great. Yeah, and so I'm be, I'm working with uh, writer uh, J.D. Falks, and, and what we're going to be doing is is a uh, a little bit of a storybook featuring a, a day in the life of the doctor, and it's just going to be like a, a little village, and it's just a day of him making house calls, walking through the village, and you know, sort of a wind in the willows sort of thing, but but a little bit of our take on that sort of uh, uh, thing, and it's really actually kind of quaint, but uh, but it's something that I'm actually looking forward to. I always enjoyed the you know like the EB shepherd illustrations you know for for the original yeah. one well so something in that kind of uh, uh thing so i'm kind of gearing up to get started on that very shortly along with a host of other things but but today that's been kind of what i've been focused on okay and what where did the littlest play doctor come from what was your inspiration well, you know, I've been working with Evelyn Crete over at Wild uh, Wildside Press, and uh, her and I have been talking about working on a number of projects, including uh, with writer J.D. Foxen, who is, uh, writes a series of books called The Aurobora Cycle, which is just shorthand is a, a series of novels that involve like this this group of vampires in like the late 1800s yeah. around the Russian mountains, that sort of thing. And it's and it's very it's very oh gosh I don't know the best way to describe it but it's very lavish and it's 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 very opulent I guess is the best way to put it and it's these various kingdoms <laughs> that are sequestered among this mountain range uh, between the Caspian uh, Sea and the Black Sea and so at any rate I'm going to be doing a graphic novel adaptation of a chapter from the first book in the series which involves. Uh, a group of the vampires kind of on a hunt. And again, they're quite elegant in their dress and their manner, and they're kind of on a horseback ride yeah. through the snow and mountains chasing the uh, scions, which are uh, these kind of like half wolf, half human creatures that are, you know, extremely violent as opposed to this, this vampire gr- group that is much more sophisticated. And so it's a, it's really an opportunity to, you know, to do some nice illustrative work, you know, yeah. with the, it was the snow and the, the horses and, the, and all that sort of thing. And I'm very excited about it and just a, a fantastic writer. But at any rate, as we were developing this graphic novel, which I'll be actually starting on later this year, we wanted to start doing some, some things to get the whole process of the Kickstarters and crowdfunding and kind of get a sense of how we were going to work together in that sense. And we came up with the this Littlest Plague Doctor character as a as kind of like a 
you know, like a little test project. And is it as it's one of those things where it started out as a, a discussion and then I did a sketch and then it started to take on a life of its own as these things tend to do, well, you know? And so the next thing, you know, we did the initial project with the little, the, the little sticker and, and, you know, a few, a few little mini prints using quotes from like Edgar Allan Poe and Emerson and, then we did a, little, a cloth patch and another cloth patch. And, and in the development of all this, we talked about doing an actual story. And again, it's interesting how things will start as a germ of an idea. And once given time, you know, it starts to actually, you know, it starts to grow. And, and some things, you know, they go so far and then it's kind of like you're, you know, it's like, well, that's not really going to go anywhere. But with something like this, it just kind of seems to as we were doing these little projects and getting reactions from people that were, you know, wanting the little prints and the patches and such, and like, well, we want to see more of this character and we'd love yeah. to see a story about this character. And and then you start to, and it's kind of, so that's kind of an interesting process for me to have like, you know, usually you come up with something with the editor and you, you know, and there's a certain project that you're assigned. And this is something that is kind of evolving in public, you know, so it's a fun little it's a fun little project, and that's and so that's where that's at at this point. So I mean, it's such a it's it, you're absolutely right as a lover and observer of your work, and you know you know you and I you and I you and I connected in a number of ways, but uh, I've observed as a result of that the 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 growth and the success of the Littlest Plague Doctor, and watching the character take on a life of its own over the last 18 months or so. And it's really, really been very fascinating to observe. And as a creator, it must be interesting when you come up with something, you know, comes something that comes out of your, your cerebellum like that, and it then takes on a life of its own, quite beyond what you expected. I always think that must be a very interesting journey to go through as a creator. Yeah, I and I and I've I've been and it's interesting because you can come up you can you can work night and day to conceive of something that you you know and and get pages of notes and designs and characters and such and and then you you know you you put all this intensity into it and and then it's it's almost like it's it's almost like it's almost a little too heavy, <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah. you know, for for the person you know for the the group that you want to. You want to get it out there for, and then you come up with something like, at least in my case, you come up with something that's kind of light and, uh, you know, you, you have a little bit of affection for it and it's a little bit light and then that immediately it registers with people and it's an interesting process. It's not the first time that has happened, I think, with, with various creators where, you know, they, they have something that they do kind of on a whim and then, and then it's the thing that registers with people, you know, this little, yeah. a little sketch or. Or, or doodle or something like that, and it, and it grows from there. So I, you know, it's a, it's always good to learn, and it's always it, for me, it's a learning process. This particular little project has been a learning process because, as you know, with my work, I'll get involved with you know some very, very labor intensive projects in terms of you know the content, the adaptations, you know the illustrations, and all that yeah. sort of thing. So there's something nice. I love doing things that are planned out and 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 thought out, but it's also nice to do something that's kind of spontaneous, you know, and has this kind of like quick, you know, delivery. Of course, of course, <laughs> and that must be a delight for you, being being you know somebody who is a very detailed creator, and you really deep dive into those projects, which can take years to manifest and create having something else that you can mix up your time with. I can absolutely see the value in that and how 
that must bring a level of balance and uh, sanity almost to your kind of you know perspective to your creative. Yeah, and you know I think what's interesting too is is it's something that that kind of spontaneity we are we are there's an outlet for that with you know the world of social media that I don't think we really had access to before. You know where it's Very like. True. You know, uh, in the case of being an artist, you know, you know, I think uh, where you can kind of improvise creatively in public and and you can form something in a way that in the past it would have to be, you know, you come up with your designs, you get approved, you find a publisher, you go to press and then you see how it goes from there. But, you know, again, you know, one of the positive uses, I think, that people can find creatively in social media. I mean, this for for young people starting out and all that is it is. It's it's almost like uh, if you think of it th- in this way, the opportunities are so vast, you know, to anyone because you can if you've got an idea one night, you can do that little doodle, you can post it online, a few catchphrases, and you know who knows, you get five people interested, ten people interested, and then it just starts to evolve. And uh, I think that part is is new. I don't think that is yeah. something that was really available to to artists the way it is now to artists and writers and, and creators and that sort of thing so. I, I i think that's very well said i think it's the supreme interactivity of the social media world in which we live now which you know men of our age people of our age often have you know, observe upon the various downsides of that but there are tremendous upsides to it and yeah. and that level of interactivity and the dialogue you can have with fans of your work and people who are interested in, in, in what you create, I think that's on a, it's on an unparalleled level of, of interactivity that there's never existed before. And I think most of that is a very positive thing if you control it properly. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I have a real fondness, I guess, a uh, romantic notion of what it was like in the early days of television, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, where you've got uh, a limited budget, limited, uh, a limited broadcast range and and that people would improvise to create to create material to put on on the air, you know, yeah. and it was just and uh, I'm a big fan of that kind of the, of the kind of ingenuity that comes out of the the restraints of 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 having a very limited uh, area to work with. But you've got this potential of reaching an audience, you know, yeah. And, uh, and I think sometimes it's interesting to go back and look at the early days of television, especially the early days of uh, animated cartoons specifically for television, yeah. uh, you know, where they would come up with, you know, like the original, like this is, you know, the Crusader Rabbits one that comes to mind yeah. Or, yeah, the early, or the early Bowinkle cartoons where yeah. they were very limited in their abilities of what they could do with the animation, but, but, they, but they balanced that out with having very very solid writing and, and like yeah. great voice actors, for example. And I think that's something, again, that could carry over into in different levels in today's, in today's internet. You know? Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I mean, I think it's fascinating the way that animation itself went on this journey from television animation. So you get the the limited animation of the of the early fifties, mid fifties, early sixties, with the, with the, the reduced frame rate and the huge India ink lines that you would see around the characters, which look beautiful in and of themselves, but are a departure from you know the lush illustration of Hanna Barbera's work at MGM or, or or you know the termite terrace guys at Warner Brothers. But those really heavy India ink lines, but there's something beautiful about it to the point that. 
as as animation then progressed and then you get into the Xerox era of the of the 70s where something was truly lost and the art of it was radically reduced still some great voice actors but for example you know what's great about Scooby Doo is the title sequence you know you, if you watch the episode you are seeing the same episode 52 times over right it's just right. the same thing again with many of the same shots you know reused but but i think then then you get into the era of like the early 2000s and people like say the the creators of the powerpuff girls the creators of dexter's dexter's laboratory craig mccracken gendica tartakovsky they're going back to that India ink look, which they're rendering and creating in a different way using modern technology, but they're embracing the beauty of those early cartoons and they truly are beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So, so I, again, I, I guess, so I don't know, maybe in a year or so, maybe you'll see some animated, uh, little plague doctor oh. <laughs> up online. Who knows? You know, John, I, I, I can't wait. And that is as good a point as any to say, <laughs> welcome to hard agree. My name is Andrew Sumner, and I'm here with my friend John K. Snyder III, the, the incredible uh, illustrator, author, comic book artist, storyteller that is John K. Snyder III, a man whose uh, work I've loved for uh, actually a very long time. Uh, and um, actually, John, you and I are, are almost the same age, and and before we talk about, about your career, where you've created some books that that I love, you know, Suicide Squad. You've been involved in Suicide Squad. You've been involved in that that beautiful version of uh, Doctor Midnight. And funnily enough, the last person I spoke to for the show was your co-creator on that and on Grendel, Matt Wagner. Oh, he and I spoke a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, of course you've also created one of my my favourite graphic novel of the last ten years, and one of my favourite graphic novels of all time, your adaptation of uh, the Great Lawrence Block's Eight Million Ways to Die, which I'd like to get into with you. But before we talk about all that, how did you first encounter comics and comic book culture, mate? Oh boy, that's a that's a great question, and it's funny. It you mean going back to like when I was a kid? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. Well, you know, like you said, we're we're from the same we're from the same era. And, you know, we were, we were in a very interesting time as uh, kids because uh, I was five years old in 1966. Yeah. And uh, 1966 is kind of a watermark year for a number of things. You had, getting back to animation for a bit, that was when they first had, in, in America here, they had actual cartoons produced specifically for Saturday morning. And uh, I think that was uh, the guy at NBC, Fred Silverman's yeah. idea, I think it's from what I've read. And uh, and the big lead tune was Space Ghost. And, you know, which everybody knows from Cartoon Network, Coast to yeah. Coast. But it, was a, it, but it was like a serious show, you know, and it was designed by Alex Toth. And I didn't know any of this at five years old. Yeah. But I knew that Space Ghost was coming to, to Saturday morning. <laughs> I, I can still remember seeing the first, you know, the first commercial for it. And it was like, it was shocking because there was nothing other than, you know, which were great, the reruns of the old Tom and Jerry and Bugs Bunny and all that. But there was nothing adventure. There was Johnny Quest, but it was, and that was, fan- that was unbelievable too. But it wasn't like something like Space Ghost, you know, in terms of appealing to a kid, you know, the guys flying around and spaceships and all that sort of thing. 
but it was, but it was, you had Space Ghost and you had the Batman show, Adam West and and all those great characters. You had Star Star Trek was a a little, it was on later at night. (laughs) So it didn't quite catch it, but you knew it was there. Yeah. Green Hornet. Oh boy. I'm, I'm kind of, and and there's all the, uh, there's all the Irwin Allen shows from that period of time as well. Yes. yes, Lost uh, in Space, Land of the Giants. Yeah. uh, Wild, Wild West. I mean, it was. And, you know, it, so, and you also, in the background, you had the, uh, the James Bond stuff, which again was, was, you know, for adults, but you had that spillover into television. So you had like the man from uncle and, yeah. and uh, here we were getting a Patrick McGowan show, a danger man was, yeah. it was called secret agent. Uh, right on. Yeah. And uh, again, with, with, that, and, with that great Johnny Rivers theme tune you, you guys yeah, had. Yeah. And, but at the same time, even though I couldn't, even though in my early and, you know, like after five and this stuff was on, you know, you know, from, I'd say from five to 10, 10 years old. I mean, it was just like a, an avalanche of this material. And I, and again, you know, things like danger man would come on in syndication. So it'd pop up on a Saturday afternoon on occasion. Yeah. It was like, wow, what's it? And it was, it was, again, I couldn't quite grasp what it was about, but I knew it was cool, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so so, you know, when I talk about my interests, a lot of them do tend to lean into, you know, like animation, movies, a television series, that sort of thing. As far as the comic books go, I love them as well, of course, you know, because they were the most accessible thing, you know, because the shows were on and very limited, but you could always get your hand on a comic book. And I was very fortunate in that my father's younger brothers were only in their uh, teens at the time. And uh, they loved Marvel Comics, and they were picking up some of the original, you know, the original late 60s runs. And I would get to go over and read them or get a few of them. But but if I was going to go, like, pinpoint certain books that I still remember to this day, I think the first comic that I remember having a huge impact on me, again, because of the Batman craze, they were releasing so much Batman material at that time that there was a there was a reissue. I learned later this was a reissue, but they put out a 3D Batman comic, yeah. and and it was a three. It came with 3D glasses, and uh, it was reprinting some of the old 50s stories. So it was that very hard edged stylistic stylistic artwork. So it's it, like it, sort of it, almost the Dick Sprang era kind of yeah, where, where Batman Jones. has the massive shoulders and you know. yeah yeah and Sheldon Moldoff I think uh, oh yes Moldoff yeah of course too. yeah yeah um, so and again I didn't know any of this as a kid but I just knew that in 3D with the glasses with that kind of hard edged illustration it was it was really deep. I mean, it looked like the characters were just jumping off the page. Right. And I think that had a, I think looking back, I think that particular comic, my dad picked it up for me, had a huge impact on me because it just gave me the impression of characters leaping off of the page, you know? And I think in my, I, I look at some of my work to this day and I, I'm always trying to get my characters outside of the borders, you know? Yeah. No, (laughs) right on. I think to some degree it may have come from from that initial exposure. But the uh, can I ask you a question? Some of yeah. your work, I think, one of the things that's kind of unique about your work, a unique flavor that your work has, is that some of it has this almost kind of spectral angularity about it. Where on the one hand, there's almost like uh, it's it, uh, it there's almost like it would be like watching, say, a cameraman like jo- Jeffrey Unsworth who shot the original Superman, the Dick Donner Superman. 
Dick Donner, may rest in peace. And it, with that sort of fantastic haziness to it, I, I sometimes find with your work, particularly some of your co- covers, it's got this brilliant kind of spectral haze while also being quite angular in its delivery. And I find it very, very hypnotic to look at. I might not be using brilliant terms to describe my experience here, but are you getting some flavour of what I'm talking about? Yeah, I and I appreciate. Thank you for the summation of of the look of my work. And I, you know, I, I, it's not so much deliberate. It's just kind of it kind of developed that way, you know. Yeah. And I think that it comes from it comes from a, a variety of, of influences. And it comes uh, it, and it's a way that it, and it's interesting because it is kind of a juxtaposition of you know with kind of the haze and the mist and and all that. That's yeah. that's kind of to give things kind of a depth. But then it's countered by like these hard edged, like with the very square shoulders and yeah. jutting jaws and that sort of thing. But I think that it on one level for me, it is to help create an immediate sense of dimension, you know, and it and it can be kind of jarring, I think, to some people because it comes across in a in a highly stylistic way. But and I do love illustration. I love I love, you know, you know, uh, classic illustration and, and I'm a big fan of that sort of thing. But for me, artistically, I think that I've I've always I've always had a uh, strong strong at reaction to stuff that's more. It's almost like I guess the best way to put it is since it is two dimensional, it is created on a two dimensional uh, plane. That 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 there's no limit to representation, yeah. and sometimes I find that literal representation is almost like is almost repetitive in terms of. You know, we're already there. You know, we're, we we see that in the real world, you know. So yeah. I kind of like the idea of, of something that's more stretched out and, and kind of surrealistic because I think you can get you can hit more of an emotional sense. And I do think that part of that comes from, you know, even going back to when I was a kid, having a reaction to. I was very lucky in that, you know, I had a lot of exposure to fine art in, in my later teen years because I, at that point in my life, I was living in the D.C. area and I was able to go down to the, the National Mall or the National Galleries or, yeah. and, and see like Van Gogh and, and a number of, a number of, of, of other artists, like German Expressionism, that sort of thing. Yes. And that yeah. really appealed to me. Also, but at the same time, I had exposure to that as a kid, too, because I would look in an issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland and yeah. see a still of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, yeah. you know, which had yeah. a huge influence on me. You know, I can remember when I was a little kid, I had a, in a, a music class, we had a we had a little book with the chords and all that. Stuff, and but they would have fine art paintings in them. And I have very distinct memory of two in particular, which were the three musicians by Picasso which is literally just almost like it looks like cutouts, yeah. you know, but it's bold and it's bright. And then there was a Chagall painting of a, a fiddler. He's in green, you know, and, and, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name quite this moment, but, but again, Chagall, the same thing where he would have, you know, these kind of blurry backgrounds and then these kind of hard, sharp yeah. images. And I'm not trying to sound overtly sophisticated or anything. I'm just saying that this is what appealed to me. You know, it's just kind yeah. of a... I, I think <laughs> you're inherently sophisticated, mate. That's the thing. <laughs> uh, and it, it's so interesting to you talk about this because now that I've heard you um, quote those references, it makes complete sense to me that they were among your inspirations because I can see that through line. And absolutely the German expressionism and also some of the some of the German propaganda art from the early 30s. You know, all of those elements I can see in your work. 
It, you know, it's funny because, you know, again, going back to when I was a kid, I mean, I was really responsive to all the, you know, I mean, all the fun, you know, the comics and, and you know, the stuff going on with the television, with TV and, and animation and all that sort of thing. But as I got into my teen years, I got, uh, it's, I still loved comics very much, but at the same time, I found myself really wanting to get more into, like I said, not so much fine art, but I was interested in illustration and, you know, like, you know, Mondrian and, and you know, and, and again, I was more interested in art was a kind of a theme, you know, and, and so, so the whole thing with the angular artwork and, and how it would, it would be in certain time periods, art deco was extremely appealing. But at the same time, too, if you go back to the 70s, as I was getting into my teen years, that was very popular in illustration. And there were a lot of illustrators, and I was very interested in illustration. Uh, and you had guys from that period that were starting to, even though they were working in an illustration style, they were still doing things that were very, very angular. And they were going back to like Linedecker, for example. I think what was the Alice Cooper record cover? Welcome to is it Welcome to My Nightmare? Or yeah, top hat. That's one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a huge that that had a huge impact on me in terms yeah. of the rendering where you had him kind of photorealistically rendered in one sense, but in the other, you know, there was these cutting lines for like the highlights and the top hat, yeah. you know, the hands and all that sort of thing. And uh, I loved all that kind of stuff too, you know, so I would try to incorporate a little bit of that as well. I, and that's a kind of beautifully circular reference because one of, one of Alice's great inspirations was a famous monsters of film man. He's a big fan. Oh, really? And, and comic books. Yeah. Yeah. I, I interviewed him for Forbidden Planet TV about a year ago. And he's a big fan. You know, ever when he's ever he's in London, that's the, the the store that the company I work for owns in the UK. It's a really well known comic book store. It's wow. One of the biggest comic book stores in the world. But he every time he comes to London, he visits. Uh, and one of the things he was talking about is absolutely his whole stage act is directly influenced by Forrest J. Ackerman, by Universal Movies, and by comic books. Yeah, so it, isn't it interesting that you should reference that? Well, wow, that's really, when, that's really, well, Alice Cooper was a big, I mean, I loved Alice Cooper. Uh, he's the man, yeah. Kids, you sure. know, I mean, and still do, but, yeah. uh, but, I, but I, can't, I can't talk about, I can't miss talking about childhood influences without mentioning uh, something we both love, which is Yellow Submarine. Oh, 100%, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, so Yellow Submarine was a, major influence on me as a kid and it was funny because it didn't actually get to see the movie it it, it was funny at that time it just it's it's hard to understand now because you know it wasn't like every movie was was accessible you yeah. know and but but i had the gold key comic and i had i had the paperback which had reprinted there was a paperback that reprinted stills from the movie and such and uh, and i just I was just absolutely just enamored of the look of Yellow Submarine the design, the way the color was used. And I, you know, at the time, I, I knew a little bit about Peter Max. I had a Peter Max paper airplane book, <laughs> which I thought was great as a kid. Right. And, and that kind of look, I know Peter Max, I don't believe he is actually directly involved with Yellow Submarine. It's a different, different group, but it, it had that similar kind of, kind of feel to it. But the thing about Yellow Submarine that I really liked was I loved the villains, the the way the bad guys. Oh uh, yeah, I, like I the, be... the the guy, the one guy Jack. I can't remember his full name, but his hands were like little snapping, like little <laughs> snapping 
like creatures at the end of his hands, and you had this, the this, giant this, apple. Yeah, What's the that? snapping turtle Turk. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. And uh, you had the uh, giant apple bonkers. You know, uh, the guy yeah, yeah, for sure. The long top hats. Yeah. You know, with the long top hats and the uh, and the big giant apples, they would drop on people. Yeah. And the flying glove. You yeah. know, with the sneer and all that. So. You know, that was really cool to me because you had this kind of surrealist, again, it looked like comic, it, it had a comic sense to it, but it also had this, you had this kind of surrealism and, and it was this certain level, this depiction of, of good and evil and, and, you know, these bright colors and, and, uh, and that was, and that was kind of, again, it was that thing again of no limit. There's no limit. If you want to draw little creatures on the end of a guy's hand, if you want to make a guy 20 feet tall with a 20 foot top hat. You know that there's no boundaries, and I and I think I really love that, and that was a big influence on me as well. Was I just I'm a huge fan of it. I loved the comic, the Gold Key comic, and I I still have it. It's missing the cover and a couple of pages and the insert poster, but I still have it uh, somewhere buried. That that's uh, that's another parallel. You and me both, mate. I've got mine as well. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, so, 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 you know, all these things kind of contributed as a kid and, you know, again, getting to the comics, I, I really, I really kind of would love any, com- any comic I could get my hand on. I would, I would learn to love it one way or the other. And yeah. it was so funny because, you know, like I said, my uncles had all the Marvels, but uh, over on my mom's side of the family at my grandparents' house there, there was a stack of comics that were kind of the communal stack for visiting my visiting cousins and they would leave it there. And there were no marvels in that stack. Yeah. It was all gold key Dell and Archie comics. And uh, there was a classics illustrated in there, uh, which was the moonstone. And uh, that was my first, you know, and I reread that a, a gazillion times. And, and that was probably the first time I read anything that was like, like an adaptation, you know, yeah. But I learned, but I love, you know, I love the Archie comics. I, I love the gold key. I mean, I, I just all the different stories they did yeah. not. So I didn't have a specific love for superhero stuff. I, yeah. I mean, it was great, yeah. but, but I always liked how DC stories were kind of self-contained. Yes. And the Marvels, you know, my uncles didn't necessarily buy every single issue. So I would never know how (laughs) they were always continued. You know, I wouldn't find out till I was like, oh, I can finally figure out, you know, how the story ends. But, uh, but, you know, but it was, there was no doubt about it in that time period of ours. Marvel was like very cool. You know, yeah, DC stuff was more restrained. It it was indeed. But something you said that really rings a bell with me is something I used to say until I was probably into my mid to late 20s after I finished college was that, well, you know, I've never read a comic book that I didn't love. And I would just read anything. I would read everything that came in in my my path, irrespective of of company. It didn't matter to me exactly what you were saying. Didn't have to be DC or, or Marvel. It could be Classics Illustrated. I used to love all the gold key Lone Rangers, the ones with the photo covers of Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels. And I used to love the Charlton books. I used to really, really, I remember I was on holiday a couple of times when I was a teenager and I picked up some of the Charlton Phantoms, which are actually quite macabre. And there's a whole run of them with like airbrushed covers that are illustrated by Don Newton and illustrated by Jim Aparo. Yeah, and, those are wonderful. And, and they just lived on in my mind. I mean, you're talking about really minor comics in a sense, but 
there was they did stuff with the phantom they often took him out of the jungle setting and uh, these books they did just feel quite ominous in their tone and i remember the whole the whole experiment that they did with oh man the name of the lines just popped out the atlas line in the in the early mid seventies, you know when 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 Goodman tried to do some Kelsey, and he came up with all those books like like Target and the Phoenix and the Scorpion and all that kind of stuff for a period of time. And everything, if it was a comic book, I would consume it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's funny about the Atlas, you know. That's so when I was a, when I was younger, and I would I would read those, you know, the the that period in the sixties. That was one phase, and then that period where the at when the Atlas books came out. Yeah, that was when I was in my early teens, and I distinctly remember that's when I first started learning about. That was a, a completely different era because then you got into the stuff that was uh, to me more more like then it was like serious, you know, yeah. and it was like and I think specifically all of a sudden you know DC had like Neil Adams, you know, yeah, doing right the, Green, the yeah. Green Lantern and Green Arrow yeah. stuff that had all this uh, written by Denny O'Neill that had all the social you know social issues in it, but also for me what was really huge was uh, discovering Howard Chaikin. And uh, Walter Simonson's work, because that's when I first found, I remember it was the a chapter, it was called Cathedral Perilous. It oh, was one man. Of the, yes. one of the, it was, a, it was in the yeah. back of a, bat, I was in the back of a Batman. Uh, it's Detective Comics. It was in the back yes, of the, back of, what, 100 page issues. 100 page issues, yeah. And, you know, I get to the back of the book and it's like, this thing was only like what seven or eight pages, and it just it just blew my mind. It was like it was like one of the most incredible things I'd seen, and it was a whole different thing. I couldn't believe how much story Walter and Archie Goodwin, the writer, had put into such a small segment. Yeah. And then with Howard, it was uh, with those Atlas books. I picked them all. There was a spinner rack at a at a little drugstore. And I went and went in and they, and I, you know, I don't know how they managed the distribution because I know they had some difficulties with it. I didn't know that at the time, but they had all the Alice books. So I just picked up every single number one and it was kind of like, you know, it was, it was like, they were interesting, right? Yeah, but right. Yeah. That, and I loved, there was one called The Destructor, which oh, was- Oh man, that was Destructor. <laughs> Archie Goodwin, Archie Goodwin, Steve Ditko, and brilliantly Wally Wood on the inks. And yeah, and Ditko and Wood is an amazing combination that you would never think would work, right? right. But it works right. beautifully. Yeah, so that was great fun. But the Scorpion, oh yeah, what, me was like this was like this is like a whole new thing. You know, this is like something different. It was just yeah. like that Manhunter, and so and what it was specifically to me was was that both Walter and, and, and Howard were integrating, you know, they were integrating all these things I'm, I'm talking about with the, you know, the, the angular work, the graphics, the sound effects. And they, they really, I thought they, I, it just was something where I'm like, this is something I can relate to. I, you know, as a, as a younger, you know, as a younger person, I was like something that really clicked with me. Stranko's work had that, had that vibe to me when I was a little bit oh, younger yeah. as yeah. well. And I remember as a kid too, further back, I mean, I loved Kirby and, and Ditko very much, but the one that always kind of, I was always kind of like, had a sense of reality to me and I couldn't understand how he did it was Gene Colan. Oh yeah, Gene sure. Colan's work also had, it was how Gene Colan was a regular comic artist is still, 
it's so unlike anything else. Yeah, you know? he, nobody. No, he. I mean, there's a lot of really individual artists, but nobody has that colon look and feel, and it that supremely kinetic art that he has. Everything feels like it's in motion all the time. You know, you can really feel things moving on the page. Yes, yeah. So, so all these different things were, you know, again, I, I you know, looking back, I, I find it interesting how, you know, I'll, I'll, you know see what other people are influenced by in comics and, and certain and certain mediums. And, and these were the things that looking back, these are the things that really kind of, you know, leapt out at me. Yeah. You know? So, so these were like key moments and, 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 and all, and all that sort of thing. But as far as, again, from childhood on that mid sixties period was really, was really quite something, you yeah. know, and it was quite an interesting period. And, and it was a neat period to be a kid. In terms of, I, I think that there was a lot of stuff coming out uh, all at once, you yeah. know, and and then it and then it kind of and then it kind of dissipated, you know, by the early seventies. Yes, that initial yeah. that initial push. So. That that's very true. That was that huge pop culture boom that you've just referenced, and it was mm. so very rich from essentially, you know, it's from Batman sixty six onwards. I think it the, the you know the pedal really got stamped down, and but it exists on a number of levels. It's not just the superhero camp of Batman. It's what you've touched upon. It's those great spy shows because because right. it's you know it's man, you've got Man from Uncle, you've got I Spy. You've got the the British spy shows, which you just referenced. Then you've got the early years of of Mission Impossible, which is quite different to the latter years of the show. You know, right. it, it, it's it's there's there's just it's such a rich period of time. I mean, you and I, as we've talked about before, have exactly the same <laughs> pop culture references, identically the same. And to to jump forward, John, what I was when I first became aware of your work. It was when Fashion in Action appeared in uh, Timothy Truman's Scout, which I reckon is the mid-80s, yeah, Yeah. if I remember correctly. So how did Fashion in Action come about? Well, well, getting back to, you know, my career and and its beginnings and such, what happened was, was, you know, as I, I was working at a graphic studio, and again, you know, it's a, it's a different era. You know, you really couldn't, I really wasn't quite sure what I was going to be doing. You know, I knew I loved comics and movies and television and all these different things. But I mean, the idea of actually breaking into any of this stuff was, there really wasn't any kind of a roadmap to it, you know? And it was, it was you know, it was just, a, it was just a very different era in terms of, you know, how are you going to make that connection? And I would, I would read articles and and books about like, you know, sending in submissions and, and all that sort of thing. And so I just kind of winged it. And I got to a point in my life where I just decided that I was going to do one story where I was going to write, draw, ink, letter, you know, one comic story. And I had, I just turned 20 and I, I went to, went to college for a little bit, got out, moved out on my own. And I was like, I got to do this. Right. So, so I was working at, I was very fortunate. A friend of mine had got me a job at a graphic studio. This was in the DC area. And we were literally, because of the lack of technology at the time, we were doing all this business work where we were hand inking bar charts and graphs and, you know, cut and paste and all these things that are completely primitive, you know, by today's standards, it's, it's hard to describe. But what was really great about all that was it, you know, we would get, you know, a certain amount of charts would have to be done in a very fast turnaround time. We had a job board in the hallway at the office 
and it would just be full of all the uh, pink receipts with the due dates. I mean, yeah. just dozens of them. And, and, you know, my buddy and I, we were, we we're the younger guys. So, you know, we'd get the late night shifts and, and, you know, that we'd work on Saturdays, that sort of thing and have to get the stuff out. So it was like, even though it wasn't any kind of illustration work or anything, you know, glamorous <laughs> in any, in no respect, it was, it was learning how to turn it, turn around volume in a very short period of time. So it gave me a sense of completion. I think looking back on it, I didn't realize it, but it gave me a sense of completion that it was possible to get something done, you know? And, yeah. and I, think, I think for a lot of, when I talk to a lot of younger people, it's like, what I try to emphasize to them is even if it's only five pages or 10 pages, if you're doing a story, you know, to start testing your abilities, yes. make sure to get all the way to the end. And that's really tough for a lot of younger people. And I, and I understand that, you know, because it's kind of hard to see it things through all the way through, but, but it's doable. You know, one way or the other, you can actually get there. And I and I kind of got shown that with my work. So I would come home at night, and uh, at you know we're talking about eras. At this point, I have I'm fully indoctrinated into all the new music that was coming out at that time. You know, not so much uh, uh, punk, but but I was loving. There was uh, I was living in the D.C. area. There was a place called the Nine Thirty Club down on F Street in downtown D.C. It was a, a small place that only held about two hundred people. But they were getting people from all over the world coming through. And uh, I, I think one of the first bands I saw there was the Rebellos. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Scottish band. You know, like, I, and what Great an amazing band. thing. It's like, here's a band from Scotland. You know, yeah, it's like, right. what a wonderful. And they were so visually, it was amazing. Yeah. They had the, the shoulder pads with the lights. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it was so, I was, you know, again, it was a major influence for me and a really very motivating. We had a wonderful alternative radio station, WHFS in the area. So I was getting to listen to a lot of this music. So this was kind of fueling my idea generation to do this one story. And it was called Brick Starbuster Space Mercenary. And it was a tongue in cheek kind of uh, punk rock drawn like a in what I thought was a Chester Gould type style. Yeah. You know, kind of, you know, dystopian thing of a guy that's got no no morals, you know, and and you know, it's a lot of heavy black areas and all that. Anyway, I drew this whole thing and it took me, I did it over, you know, the first year I was out of the house and I got it, I got went made 10 photocopies of it. And I got and I just I just following all these little articles I'd read and such, you know, I'd I'd go to the go to the drugstore and look all the addresses or whatever I had at home. And I got the address for heavy metal and Epic Illustrated, which was yeah. Marvel's kind yeah. of semi. Oh, so that was a great book. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great uh, magazine. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And uh, there was, uh, and also the, the small alternative world, the alternative world of comics had just started. So you had Pacific comics had just started yeah. up, which ended up putting out the Rocketeer. So I got about, and, and the guys up at DC, I found DC and Marvel's general. Anyway, I remember I, I got 10 photocopies, 10 cover letters, 10 envelopes, and I just mailed them all out at the same time. And I yeah. knew at the time that they were probably all going to get rejected. I was pretty realistic about it, you know, at the time. So I, so, and I did, and I, and I actually kept those rejection letters. One of them was from Archie, who ended up working with me on Dr. Midnight over at Epic. Yeah. And they were all, for the most part, form letters. And so, you know, I kind of put it aside. And I was still working at the graphic place and I was starting to do uh, artwork for local bands. I was trying to do something, you know, so yeah. that was one venue. 
And there was a local club down the street. I had moved to, to Alexandria, Virginia at this point. There was this little rundown place called the 704 Club. And I was doing monthly calendars for them, just getting giant poster board and like putting in like collages and drawings and stuff and stick. In that time period, I got a letter finally from Eclipse Comics from Dean Mullaney. Yeah. And he explained to me, and it was the first person where it wasn't a form letter. So he explained to me that, that he thought the artwork was promising. I could work on the writing, but, but the character was too much of a, a anti-hero creep and no one's going to like, you know, a guy that's just bad, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of funny in retrospect, because it was just like, as you know, and because now so many shows are centered around, you know, real anti, anti, anti-hero types. But, but in any respect, you know, that was really, that was really great. To me, I took that as a huge positive. And I was still drawing all the time. I was drawing in my sketchbooks. I was still trying to do as much artwork as I could. I was trying to get involved a little bit in the local DC art scene, but very peripherally. You know, I, I, again, I was really not, I was really not, I was never really part of any particular group. (laughs) I was always kind of just wandering about, but anyway, I had actually ended up, went to a small show and I met Tim Truman and Tim was there with John Ostrander and I believe Mike Gold and they had just started up first comics and I, I'd still had copies of this brick Starbuster thing and I showed it to Tim. And Tim got very, very enthusiastic about it. And he was like, this is, and it, it appealed to Tim. Tim, as I later later learned, was into a lot of comic art overseas and was, you know, Tim's got this really wonderful eye for, and introduced me to a lot of terrific artists around the world. Yeah. So he saw something in my work that a lot of other people did not pick up on. And that was a break for me. So we ended up communicating via via postcards and letters. And about a year later, he was working on a graphic novel for First Comics called Time Beavers. And it was like a a funny animal space opera, which was kind of a thing at the time. You had Bucky O'Hare and I think Rocket Raccoon had just started, you know, had made his first appearance. But uh, this was Tim's own thing. And he wanted to get it out. So he offered for me to come up and stay with him and his wife and young son up in uh, Wisconsin for about a month. And we were in a little room and he had a drawing table on one side and a drawing table on the other. And we literally sat back to back and I would work on these really rough layouts. And then he would, he would on the light table, draw these really detailed pencils, you know, over the top and tighten up everything. And again, it was that production thing. I mean, we, we got in there and it was a real, we turned around. I think we walked into Michael's office there in at First Comics with you know this forty-eight page stack of pencils, like within like six weeks. You yeah. Know? Wow. And so yeah, it was. But I was into it, you know. Yeah, and it was yeah. exciting. It was really an exciting time because you know you turn on the TV. I remember right before I got ready to leave, we were looking at the TV and it was like a a commercial for the Terminator, the first Terminator. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. You think that's going to be any good? You know. <laughs> It was a glorious time, though, because, uh, I mean, I really loved the, the early years of Eclipse, and I really loved the early years of the, the years of First. I really loved First's output and Pacific Comics, all that stuff. It was it was a great time to be a comics lover because it there was I've, I felt there was, there was so much glorious experimentation, but so much great stuff was coming out, which 
it wasn't it wasn't just it was it was coming from the Medici Marvel factory. It was coming from elsewhere with a different sensibility. But it's a sensibility that's really informed a lot of what has happened in the comics medium in the 30, 40 years since. Oh, I, I really do agree. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's when I felt like I had a chance because I didn't really feel like I mean, I, I was not a superhero artist and it's something that I didn't really try to do. And so, you know, the idea of doing something for Marvel or DC, it didn't even really ever cross my mind. It was always like, maybe I can do something for Epic Illustrated. Maybe I could do something for Heavy Metal. But then when you see what you saw, what First was doing and Eclipse, then that opened things up. So while I was with Tim working on Time Beavers, he said, I've got an idea for this new book called Scout. I'm going to do it over at Eclipse and I'm going to need a backup feature. Yeah. And I had brought my sketchbooks with me and he's like, I like this. And I had, I had actually started drawing the fashion and action characters as a thought, you know, from coming home from the clubs and seeing all the different fashions and my love of the old spy stuff, you know, it yeah. all kind of like yeah. blended together. Yeah. And I would be adverse not to, not to mention that a huge part of the influence visually of this sort of thing was Again, as a kid, I absolutely loved the stuff that was coming out of that stuff was coming out like the the Avengers, you know, the yeah. actual, you know, Emma, you know, the, the actual. Pale. Yeah, for yes, sure. Thank you. And um, uh, mate, if you will see, there's my uh, there's my bowler hat and there's my umbrella, you know, artfully placed in the room. <laughs> you know, it's a, I know exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. So that whole that whole era, and again, again, as a kid. It was. It's not like now where you can go on Google search and see a million images. They would. They would. They would appear like blips on the radar for me. You know, an episode yeah. of the Avengers would. It was never on regularly. It would come. It would pop on, and and I would be like, "What was that?" You know, and it was almost. And and the prisoner, huge because when I was a kid, my dad and I would watch the Jackie Gleason show. This was back in '68, and it was the summer replacement for Jackie Gleason. And so it was what like a replacement that must have right. been. So, you know, one week we're watching, you know, it's Jackie Gleason with the, you know, doing his routines. And the next week it's this guy in all black running from a giant white balloon, you know. And it was like, wow. I mean, I mean, you can't, the imagery was so powerful that even as a kid, even though it was totally over my head, it was, it was, you know, fantastic, you know. So, so there was, and I remember one time it was like Sunday night, the movies on ABC or whatever, they had a showing of the, uh, this movie with Diana Rigg called the assassination. Bureau. Oh, the assassination bureau. Yeah. Right. Fantastic. And that, again, it's, you know, it's, it's this kind of, you know, before they called it steampunk, you had this kind of technology Absolutely. and, Absolutely. and, and you know, Oliver Reed, I think was the bad guy. And yeah. And, you know, yeah. Anti-hero, is he good? Is he bad? Kind of. Right, right. And they have such great chemistry, the two of them. Uh, I'd love to see the movie again. I haven't seen it. I I can't remember since when. Yeah, you you know what? I I don't think, I've seen it more than once. And I think both of the times I saw it, I was under the age of 12. So, so it's, 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 it's very, very similar. And by the way, mate, something I wanted to say is that I think something you and I have in common, and we, we've talked about The Prisoner on our own time, because I'm a big lover of that show. And I, in fact, I love all those ITC adventure shows that, that, that they were put, they were produced by Lord Grade, Lou Grade over here in the UK, shot at like the big name studios, Pinewood, Elstree, whatever, but they were shot like American shows on big budgets on 35 millimeter film, which a lot of, most British TV drama of the time was shot on videotape, right? But these were shot with movie-style budgets. And uh, 
for sale to the American market, which is why very often the leads in those shows, not in The Prisoner, not The Avengers, but in all the other shows, most of the leads are American, right? And uh, I, I love all of those shows. So you haven't just got The Prisoner and, you know, The Avengers was ATV, and, but you've got The Saint and you've got Man in a Suitcase and The Baron and The Champions and Randall and Hopkirk deceased. And I don't know how many of those shows you've actually seen yourself. They would but, pop up again. They would pop up. It would only, every once in a while. You you know turn up. Uh, there was yeah. one with Robert Vaughn. What what was that? Oh, uh, that that's the Protectors. The Protectors, which, had, which like, has an amazing theme tune, by the way. Yes, got, and it, it, it came on, and it was like, oh, cool. What's this? Yeah, and then it was yeah. like it was never on again. These, yeah, these right. things <laughs> yeah, on yeah. randomly, and I was like, yeah. again, we didn't have you. You know, it was like a one-time deal. You would see these things. And so I don't know. I think I think sometimes that made it resonate even more, you know. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of that stuff kind of in, it got into you know when it, so Tim's like develop fashion and action, and so it's all these things we've been talking about. I just kind of poured all of that into this, you know. And again, I was absolutely in love with at that time. I was starting to learn more about comics from around the world, and Eclipse had just published Strange Days. Yeah. And that was my introduction to Peter Milligan and Andrew McCarthy and yeah. all those guys. Yeah. And, and just the first issue of that was, you know, I know people talk, you know, I mean, Watchmen's great and Dark Knight and all that. And like, you know, milestone books. And yes. yeah, I was mentioning Scorpion, but Strange Days visually was just like, I mean, it was again, it was stretching the limits of what could be done. And I was seeing what I was seeing was some of the stuff that was being done in heavy metal and, and like the more, you know, slick, super slick, it was like, it was starting to integrate itself into the stuff that was at the comic shop. So I was like, you know, I felt like the, the world was, was opening up to be able to do these sort of things. Also my introduction to judge dread. I mean, I just absolutely loved everybody that was working on judge dread. Yeah. I mean, all those Mike McMahon and uh, Cam Kennedy. And I mean, all those guys were just, so all this stuff was uh, a big influence on me. So really, you know, and of course I'd seen Blade Runner and, and that, you know, was a, a yeah. huge, uh, huge impact too. So all that kind of filtered into fashion and action. And again, getting back to Manhunter, uh, Tim told me that, you know, I was going to have a seven to eight issue slot to, to do fashion and action. Yeah. And it was going to be eight pages. So my idea was, well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to do eight, eight little stories. I'm going to do one long extended story just like yeah. they did in Manhunter. So, yeah. and it, that worked out really well. So, so anyway, that's a little bit of the background of how all that came together. Now, now that make, that, that is fascinating. And I, I'm a huge, huge fan of Manhunter. It's one of my all-time favorite comics. And I was lucky enough to read it in real time, you know, getting re- as reading detective comics every month. And I've read it in numerous collected editions ever since. But I think what's great about that piece of work is, I don't think that Walt's art has dated in any way as an as an experience. Yeah, it's rooted. It's the sensibility is rooted in the in the seventies, but as a piece of entertainment, it's still fresh and exciting now when you read it. It's put together so beautifully. It's way ahead of its time, I think. I I, I really love his work too, and still do. And I thought it was it was interesting. He had mentioned when he had mentioned that an influence on him was the artist for the comic strip Modesty Blaze, which again was a huge influence yeah. on me. And I and again I had only seen a couple of 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 that. I'm sorry, the artist's name on that was yeah. Was, now that's 
Man, that's an excellent, that's an excellent question. But he, his work, his work, again, I'd only seen a couple of strips in it and it was reprinted in the Penguin Book of Comics. And, uh, and so that even just being able to look at those, I loved that style that he had. Yeah, he was wonderful, wasn't he? He was wonderful. I mean, it was such a fascinating, it was such a fascinating strip, was it? Well, oh yeah, because it, 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 the author who created Modesty Blaze was Peter O'Donnell, right? Yes. Or, Mm. Yeah, uh, Jim Holdaway was that all. Thank you, Holdaway. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say holiday, holiday. I knew it was the right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right, it's, right. it's beautiful work. Yeah, right. it's, it's really so. beautiful. So, 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 John. Actually, the the other thing I want to say about this era is is I I feel that when it comes to the prisoner, I think that you were sartorial inf- sartorially influenced by that show in the same way that I was because. In most, it, whenever I see you, you, you like myself, you have a very fondness for a sort of black color palette with your clothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I, you're like me. You're a man who wears black. A man of a certain age who wears black on black all the time. Yeah, I can't help it. I mean, it's yeah, definitely me neither. A major impact. I'm always looking over my shoulder for for the rover. I for the rovers. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, so true. Uh, so, so true. Have you? ever been to Port Marion mate? No, I have not, but it was funny. I had just seen that I just saw that somebody there I guess they they have like a a, a live cam. Yeah. You know, just projecting oh, yeah. out here on a regular. I got a big laugh out of that 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 there's there. Have you been there? Yeah, I, I've been there a lot uh, and uh, and because obviously I'm here in the UK so I'm able to. The first time I went was before I ever saw the show. But my mum had seen the show, and 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 I was captivated by the place when I first. I was probably I was probably ten, and for some reason I had maybe my mum and dad at the time thought thought that the 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 prisoner itself was too adult, and I only came to out of all those I saw all of those ITC shows, but I didn't see the prisoner until I was actually in college. But I saw I I so I went and went round Port Mary and was captivated it captivated by it before I ever saw the TV show. But funnily enough, I, one of the many times since that I've been there is when I got married to the the lovely mother of my children, to whom I'm no longer married, but she's she's one of my best friends. She's a great person. But we got we got married at Port Marion. Oh, you know, and it was just a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic moment in time. And it was a, such a fantastic weekend. And I'd heartily recommend it to anybody who's looking for a wedding venue that get married at Port Marion. It's an incredible place. Oh, that's neat. That is really neat. It's so, a, it looks quite, it was, it was brilliant. It was a brilliant choice. To yeah, use I'm really just. inspired. Yeah. I, you, you, you would love it, mate. But to flip back to you, so you, you, you've got fashion and action under your belt. And then, then you worked with with the other thing then when i was next really aware of your work is that great arc you did with matt wagner and grendel the god and the devil how did that come about well i had i had you know worked on fashion and action i actually followed up the 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 one long installment with a couple of extra specials and then worked on some other work with eclipse and then moved on to at the time i i had actually again getting back to my influences kamiko had picked up johnny quest the license for johnny quest and i you know i was like i you know again with the kind of work i was doing in fashion and action I thought that would translate pretty well into Johnny Quest. So I had sent a a couple of pages to try out. And the editor on the book, Diana Schutz, had said to, you know, she was like, you know, we've already got some people lined up. Would you do a gallery piece? So I did a gallery piece with the characters 
And then I believe, I believe when she returned the art, she, there was a little sticky note on there saying, would you be interested in working on with Matt Wagner on Grendel? And I knew of Matt's work at the time. I knew about Grendel. I knew about Mage, but I had actually not really, I was not that familiar with the books. So, yeah. and so, you know, I, I went to the store and I picked up uh, a copy of Grendel, which is at that time was the, the run with Christine Spar. Yeah. And I okay. thought, Oh, I get it. Cause I did fashion and action and you've got a strong female lead and, and I get it They're, They want me to do a Christine Spar. It makes sense to me. And I'm like, yeah, this is really cool. It has a very <laughs> lot of similar sensibilities with the fashion and, and all that sort of thing. And uh, I can't, re- I, I think maybe I'd had a brief phone call with Matt and I'll, I'll never forget it. <laughs> it was so funny. Cause I was like, so you want me to, I was like, yeah, this looks really cool. And, and I'm really interested in it. And, and I said, you know, so I'll be drawing Christine Spar, right? And he's like, no, we're going to kill her off. I got something all different planned for you. And I was, and immediately was like, I think I'm going to like working with this guy. Because I was just absolutely like, you're going to what? You know, I, I, I mean, this is a great character. What you, what's happening, you know? Yeah. But, but I loved that there was going to be that kind of unpredictability. You know, right yeah. away it was like, okay, this is not going to be like anything. This is not going to be run of the mill anything right so so i was definitely on board and uh, so then from there you know i had some communication with diana and and then we started figuring out how the book was going to be mapped out and diana you know i was inking my own stuff at the time but with the 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 workload and such 26 pages an issue on a monthly schedule it was going to be like we're going to need an anchor and I, I loved the way Jay was inking the Panda Brothers at the time. So, yeah. you know, I was like, well, can Jay come on board? So, so I remember Jay and Matt and I met at San Diego. I think it was a 1987 show. And we took a break from the show and walked to a separate, I think we walked down to like a little restaurant or something. And, and Matt let, laid out the, the initial, like, here's my basic idea. You know, I want it set in the future you know, uh, here's the basic setting. And he had come up with the idea of splitting up the different art chores, you know, where I would draw the majority of the the storyline. And then I would, I would pencil the majority of the storyline, 10 issue storyline. The Jay would do the three issue in between spots between each issue that would spotlight the, the main Grendel character. And then the other seven issues would deal with this whole universe that the, that this world that the characters were in. And we both went home and, you know, I just, just off of this one little meeting, started doing a bunch of little drawings, just like basic ideas about what to do with the characters and that sort of thing. And Jay did some too. And it just started to all come together from there. Yeah. And we were off and running by fall. And and that book really exploded and got you a major amount of attention was my perception at the time. I, I think it certainly seemed to be an accelerant for your career, I think. I think so too. And it was funny because, you know, from my point of view, I was always busy. I mean, it was a really busy period. There was, I I was always working and it was like, I I think, I think it was one of those things where things would just happen, you know, and it would be a timing thing. Something new would come up and then it would be like, okay, I'll work on this. And then, okay, I'll, I'll work on this. And it didn't really, I did not realize, I knew Grendel had some popularity, but I did not realize until I started working on the series, just how popular it was, you know? And then yeah. it became it, came, it became very apparent 
once I got involved in it, that, you know, I was involved in something that had, had already had a very big following. So, yeah. yeah, so it was neat, you know, it was definitely a neat, a neat experience. And I was so happy that at this point, I think people are getting conditioned to the fact that Grendel, whoever was Grendel was only going to be Grendel a temporary period because I yeah. think they'd already killed off Hunter Rose and killed off Christine Spar. And there's a character I think after that Bernie Moreau had done a few issues of. So at that point, people were, I think, used to the fact that, you know, this was going to be temporary, whatever version. Yeah. But it does, it, it, it's nice. I like the fact that to this day, so many people are uh, so enamored of specifically the Epi Thatcher version. You know? Oh, absolutely. It's, and, and of course, it, it introduced a very fruitful creative relationship between you and Matt Wagner. Of oh, course, we, we had a lot of fun, yeah. <laughs> and I've had a lot of fun reading your work. I mean, relatively recently, I really enjoyed uh, what you did with Lady Zorro at Dynamite. But the thing that I'd like to get into a bit more detail on is I think my personal favourite of your collaborations is the Peter Cross Doctor Midnight? I, I think I, I, I really, again, I really love that series. I bought it. it the, I've still got my three prestige issues, and I've got my my collected edition as well. But I, I, it, I, I really love the execution of that book, and and it was one of the things I was talking to Matt about the other week. But when you look back on that, I, I'm thinking you must have a lot of fondness for it. I, I do. And, and, you know, I think one of the things was, was that you were, you know, again, I was, again, Matt, Matt and I are born just a few months apart. You know, we yeah. have very similar, there's a lot of things that he and I can talk, you know, it's finish, pick up a sentence and he'll finish yeah. it and that sort of thing. So I think we had a lot of creative sensibilities that were so similar that, that I thought we worked together very, very well, you know, and, and he would come up with a basic idea and then I would, I would run with it and then he would go back and he would do his dialogue. And I, I thought that his writing on our run of Grindel was really fantastic. I mean, I would, yeah. I would get the stuff back and I just loved the way he wrote. I especially loved the way he wrote the last issue of our run. I thought it was just yeah. uh, the last page is one of my, I still have the original of that. It's in, in one of the reasons I, I, I love having it so much is I love his writing on that page. Yeah. I think it's so it's so good. And, and I just thought that we really blended well together. So as we were winding down that run, I was like, I, I want to keep working with this guy. You yeah. know? And I had talked to him. I said, you know, and he had started doing stuff over at DC. And I had, through, through the conventions, had finally managed to talk to Archie Goodwin. You know? yeah. and, and Archie was moving over to DC. And I was like, you know, I was like, hey, guys, you know, can we do something? And at this time, again, the comics business was going through some changes where the, you know, with the popularity of Dark Knight and Watchmen and some of the stuff that was going on, the DC and Marvel were opening up to doing painted stuff. I, I want to say also that what, what was a big breakthrough book that a lot of people I don't think realized was that Dave McKean did a Black Orchid. Oh, um, the Neil Gaiman, Dave McKean, yeah. Black Orchid. Beautifully yeah. illustrated, yeah. Yeah, and and I remember when that came in, and it was again. I was, I don't think a lot of people remember that because they remember Arkham Asylum, but yeah. Black Orchid preceded it, and there was there was nothing like that before. No. There was one page in particular where it was like Lex Luthor. It's a full page of him at a table, and it was done in black and white. It was it was a main image of him, but then 
the left-hand side of it was split up in sequential panels and it had a little bit of color in it, right? So, so the point is, is that there had never been a mainstream comic with a mainstream character like Lex Luthor rendered in, in this kind of really artistic, illustrative fashion. Yeah. And, and coming out from a company like DC Comics, right? Yeah. So that was a really big deal. And I think that really opened it's up to me. It's a great depiction of Batman in that book as well. Yeah. It, and, the Batman scenes are incredible. So it really opened up a, it was like, wow, there's potential here. And, and I had just, I also had done the, the, before graphic novels, they called them prestige format books, yeah. you know, which were, you know, the kind of stiff covers with the, with the yeah. perfect binding. And uh, I had done the adaptations of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And, oh, on the secret agent, right? Right. Yeah, that was great. That was that was the secret agent. I thought Jekyll and Hyde was great, but I I I did a thesis on secret agent for my English degree. So did you really? yeah, I did. Yeah, one hundred. I'll send it along sometime. Yeah, yeah the indolent the indolent Monsieur Verloc. You know, it's yeah for sure. But I I I, I really responded to that to your adaptation. I thought it was lovely. Oh, thank you. So so I had had you know I'd had a precedent to be able to do something full color. And so anyway, you know, anyway, the, 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 I had been able to talk to Archie and Matt. Matt was on board for it. And we went through a, a process of elimination because even back then, you know, it was difficult to get a character approved, you know, to be able to. And so the whole thing is, is I, I kind of reached into characters that, you know, I, I knew it would be difficult to try to do something with, you know, somebody like Batman or Superman or yeah. something like that. But I thought, well, if we get a character that's not being used like a lot, like the same way they got, they did Black Orchid and, uh, and Dr. Midnight, you know, going back to wearing all black <laughs> yeah. Dr. Midnight yeah. had been a personal favorite of mine since I was a kid, Yeah, specifically because of an Alex Toss uh, segment in Justice Society that had been reprinted in one of those hundred page uh, books. So so we managed to get uh, the okay from Archie. Archie managed to get the okay for us to do something with Dr. Midnight. And then it was, and then it was, again, it was the same thing where Matt would have a germ of an idea and I would, I would just start drawing all these different ideas. Like, you know, and then Matt would like, okay, let's fine tune this. And, and, you know, again, we were on the same page because Matt and I both just love pulps, you know, the old, 30s pulp thing, Uh-oh. Shadow, yeah. all that sort of thing. And it's real funny because he grew up reading Shadow reprints, you know, the paperback reprints that were, but I was, I, I was really into Doc Savage. I thought yeah, Doc okay. Savage. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and the Shadow books were hard. I couldn't find them when I was a kid, but Doc Savage was everywhere. So, yeah, right. So, you know, so it kind of blended, you know, again, Doc Savage, you know, Dr. Midnight. So it was kind of blending these various elements together. And it was it was really an exciting time because there was nobody at that time there was no there was no holds barred we could do whatever we wanted in terms of you know the character development we came up with a whole bunch of new like he would be this inner city kind of on the streets doctor helping out people on the streets and and he you know like Doc Savage and Shadow would have operatives he would have operatives and they would be like people of the street and the whole thing just had. You know, it just, it, it, it just, to me, it was like, it was just a, a big playground, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it just uh, had limitless possibilities. And it was so great to be able to, you know, to work in all these different color mediums, as opposed to the straight pencil ink, 
process color. So it was it was really an exciting time. And and you know, I I had suggested, I think I had suggested at the time that we use the terrible trio because again, they were these obscure Batman villains yep. that I had remembered as a kid. And I and again getting back to even the littlest plague doctor thing and the wind in the willows, I just I always love the little creatures walking around in clubs. Yeah, absolutely. These little gangsters with the shark head and the fox and yeah. all that. And it was very easy to turn them from being just, you know, regular crooks to like these big corporate, you know, creatures, yeah. you know. So it all seemed and it it all kind of tied in because Dr. Midnight, you know, has the owl and yeah. you know, you have this kind of connection between the environment and and the animals and and science and and it just and the pulps and it was just a great it was great fun, you know. Yeah, and and it, I really it, enjoyed it. I can see that, and I think your playground analogy is is, is very well ma- very well made. And I, I too, as you know, I'm a huge pulp fan, so all of that resonated with me. For uh, uh, the the th- and at a similar time, you you did that very memorable art, the Janus Directive, right, with John Ostrander on Suicide Squad, which to this day, that is extremely well considered. You're very well remembered for that run. And I would say that, you know, Suicide Squad, therefore, is is a property that you're always associated with. And that must be, that must be truly uh, a pleasure at this moment in time because i know you've done bits and pieces around the uh, the suicide squad movie the J- the james gunn flick that must be so great to be in the middle of that while it's going down it's it's really it's really a pleasant surprise and you know preceding dr midnight i i had gotten a call from uh, john ostrander and he had asked if i he asked if i'd be interested in working on suicide squad and he and his wife at the time, Kim Yale, were writing the book. And Kim was a huge fan of fashion. Kim and John also were big fans of fashion and action. And as yeah. I told you, I, I really was not, uh, I didn't consider myself a superhero artist. But at the same time, there was, there were, John's writing, John and Kim's writing, and the nature of the book with these kind of like third-rate villains that were kind of doomed, you know, yeah. <laughs> being part of the suicide yeah. squad, you know, with these, these missions, these, these, uh, impossible missions, you know, it all made sense. Right. Yeah, and it, right. And I felt That's a right. certain amount of freedom because it was kind of like anything goes, you yeah. know, no one's going to be particularly concerned about how things work out for captain boomerang, you know, or, Correct. or, yeah. or, uh, or at the time peacemaker, you know, yeah. or, or these various characters. So it was a lot of fun, you know, yeah. and John and Kim's scripts were, I, I mean, they were so good. I mean, it was, they would send me these full scripts and, and it was, it was so much fun because it had a strong sense of superhero, you know, the superhero adventure, but it was very uh, satirical, you yeah. know, but it was, yeah. it was still respectful of the characters and yeah. it was, and John is a, you know, John's a really great writer, you know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, John's been involved with stage and, 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 you know, you know, comedy and all that kind of thing. He's really, he's really, really got a lot of depth and he was him and Kim both brought this. It was just a great amount of fun to work on. Yeah. And so when they called me and, and said, we want you to work on this, the first thing I had to do out the gate was this Janice directive tie in. So it was tied in with all these different books and it was going to be like, all these different characters that I'd never heard of. And DC comics sent me a, a pile of comp of who's who, which was like a directory yeah. uh, comic. 
And I'll never forget, I just, I got this pile, FedEx, because they couldn't email you, you know, like uh, JPEGs or anything at the time. So I got this pile with all these different characters from all the different books. And I went and made photocopies of all, it was like 30 different characters. And I got a big mailing, I got a big roll of brown mailing paper. And in my studio, I just, I just put the brown paper up on the wall and started like, you know, taping up all these different like copies of all these different characters and just drawing lines to which book, you know, which characters <laughs> were part of. Because it was the only way to figure it all out, you know? Yeah. And it was so funny because it had to get done in a very short period of time. So it was a real, it was really intense. But 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 I was I was very lucky because those four issues for a guy just starting out on something like that. I was very lucky because my editor at the time, Bob Greenberger, assigned Pablo Morcos and Ken Carl Kiesel to do yeah. the finishes over my work. And, and Carl did a beautiful job. And Pablo, I was a huge fan of since I was a kid from Tales of the Zombie, so, yeah. which was a Marvel horror comic he did. And, and the whole thing came, came together and it was really neat. You know, it was really yeah. neat, a neat process. And, I, and then, you know, John called me up after that and he's like, Hey, John, do you want to go to Apocalypse? Because we're going to like have all the characters and we're going to have Dark yeah. Side and Female Furies. And it was like, it was, again, it was a playground, you know, it was yeah. like getting in the sandbox with the toys, you know, and it was all so much fun. And I loved working on all of it. And I, and it was so funny. It's so funny to me to see, I did, I, if you had told me, I mean, this is 33 years ago that I did those first issues. If you had told me that there was not only one, the two Suicide Squad movies, <laughs> and that everybody was really excited about Peacemaker, who at the time was a, had was a joke. Had, yeah, yeah. moved over from Charlton. You were yeah, talking really about the Charlton books. It's it's unfathomable. I mean, I can't even kind of, but it's it's great, you know. I, and yeah. and I and I think the thing that excites me the most about this new one is when I when I heard they were doing the sequel, it was like, oh, that's cool. But when I heard they had James Gunn working on it, yeah. Because I had seen Super recently for the first time. What a great ago. film. What a great film, mate. <laughs> I was like the guy. Such brilliant sensibility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just I, thought the guy that's doing Super is doing Suicide Squad. I'm like, that is a match made in heaven. One thousand percent. And not only that, but but the guy is actually, you know, undoubtedly and very vocally a massive fan of of John's work and a massive fan of your respective run on the book. So, you know, it, he 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 frequently name checks, you know, yours and John's work on Suicide Squad and Kim's work on Suicide Squad. And and I, I I've got to tell you, mate, I, I was a huge fan of the book. Uh, and and actually my 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 personal Suicide Squad story is that years ago, one of the first journalism gigs I had this is way before I ever worked for the enemy and all those titles was I used to, I used to contribute to speakeasy, which is a British magazine about comic books published by John Brown, who also published the great comedy. Yeah. And very, very early on in my involvement, I was asked to do a top 10 comics of the moment thing. And, and I did my top 10 comics was I used all of the page length to talk about one comic book, which was yours and John's run on Suicide Squad, which at the time I described as absolutely perfect 
like oh. B movie comics, you know, to me. That, and, I, and I thought you guys were just, you guys and Kim were just doing something else that nobody was doing in comics in that time. And the fact that you were just lurching through the DC back catalogue, but giving it this very pulpy sensibility, this real sense of pace and humour, I, I really thought it was an exceptional book. And so and so I wrote, I, instead of doing this top 10, I just wrote it all up this, this rave about Suicide Squad. And as a result of that, I, I got hired by that magazine and I got a full-time job out of it. So my entire career as a journalist, basically oh. you can almost, almost time back to that rave review of your run on Suicide Squad and edited, as you just mentioned, by, by our mutual friend, Bob Greenberger. So Bob, if you're listening to this, thanks to you as well, mate. You know, so, so yeah, I, I, I mean, it's wonderful hearing you talk about that time because I could see just by reading and absorbing the book to the degree that I did, that you must have been loving creating that. And Ostrander and Kim must have been loving writing it. And it just looked like there was so much creative alchemy in it. It's and I and it's I I, I saw I saw that James Gunn posted a photo of him and John yeah. Ostrander on the set for yeah. uh, Suicide Squad. And that he had John in uh, as a role. I guess he's the doctor that injects them with the explosive device so they can't get away. And I think that's been pretty much my favorite moment of watching the production of this movie so far. I mean, it was it's just so great to see John getting getting the acknowledgement he deserves. And I just think that it's wonderful that he's in the movie, but not only in the movie, but there's this acknowledgement of his work on the movie. I mean, work on the series. Because, you know, it's, it's just really a nice thing to see. And it's, and it's, it's just really a, a pleasant, it's a pleasant kind of a synchronicity, you know, between the comics and movies to have yeah. that kind of, you know, respect for an acknowledgement of, of the, the original source, you know, yes. even though, even though the, the, the creative people making the movies are going in their own direction and making their thing, but it's great to acknowledge that that original source too. I'm very excited for the movie. I think it's going to be great. And I was really a pleasure to, yeah, I did a couple of variant covers for, I think it was for Infinite Frontier. They they did a series of uh, covers that are coming out in August, the month the book comes, uh, the movie comes out. So it was really a thrill to go back and revisit these characters after all these years. And I was really, I was really, uh, it was really nice to be brought back on board to do that. So it really is a very, it is a lot of fun. Oh, I know. I was very pleased to see you back on it, and I'm very impressed just from what I've seen from the trailers alone about how much of you know yours and John's DNA is in the project. I think I, I, I it's I'm very excited about. I, I don't really get excited about. I mean, I love superhero movies, but there are so many of them. Even to a massive fan like me, it's almost impossible to get excited about them before they come out. Some of them are great experiences, but you know, I'll go and see them and have a good time. But this one, for for all of that, having having that history of being such a fan of your your work on the book on that period of time, and to see so much of it reflected in the bits and pieces I've seen, I can only imagine what it's like for you guys, you know, waiting to see that film. I, I, if I was you, I'd be like, man, roll it now. I want to see it. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. It's funny. I took one of my daughters with me to see the first movie. Yeah, and uh, and we had a, a lot of fun watching it, but it was really fun because we were wa- we were watching it, and it, when they got to the end, 
when they had their big fight, you know, it, it, it has on the front it has written the Ostrander building. Yeah. And I looked over <laughs> to my daughter and I said, that's the, that's my friend who wrote the book, you know, used to write the comic, you know, and it was like, it's really kind of fun to have that. So yeah. I'm hoping to grab hopefully both of my daughters to come with me to see the, uh, see the movie when it comes out in August. Oh, yeah, mate, you've got to do that. <laughs> that that'll be a wonderful family moment. Yeah, right. So and yeah. and um John, where I'd like to where I'd like to uh sort of wind up our conversation for today. Um because there's other things that we could talk about of yours that 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 I loved. You know, I I really loved your Mr. E book. I thought that was great. And I, I, I love the work you did on Phoenix Without Ashes, which was Harlan Ellison's, when he originally published that as a book, because it was originally his Star Lost pilot, wasn't it, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I bought and read that in the time and loved it. I also love what you did on that. But, of course, what I want to talk to you about is, like one, one of the other many things we have in common is that we're huge fans of the, of the great Lawrence Block and his PI character, Matt Scudder. And uh, and as you know, one of the things I do on 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 the side is is edit noir fiction, and you know I work on the My Camera books with uh, Max Allen Collins. When I say work on them, I'm his editor. He writes them, and he does a spectacularly good job. But I'm a huge Lawrence Block Block fan, as are you. And I would love to hear about your particular ride with your your fantastic adaptation of Eight Million Ways to Die, and and how that came about, and how long it took you to do, and where it came from. Well, let's see. I'm trying to think of a good starting point. Well, I've as a because it's such a big story. Yeah, <laughs> you of know, course. In terms of, of terms of, I'm not like how how I got from there to from here to there on it. But but I I've always been a big fan of you know I guess you would call it film noir before. You know, before these things really started getting classified that way, right? and yeah. it just I loved mystery stuff. I mean, as a kid, going back to when I was a kid, I think the first thing that I really uh, one of my first loves was uh, the original Dick Tracy comic strip. You yeah. know, and uh, I had a collection of the original 1930s and 40s stories. I, I think Bonanza Books had put it out of the early Chester Gold stuff, which was unbelievably intense and violent. You know. Yeah, and, and that really appealed to me as a kid. It, you know, again, you know, when I was a kid, it was, there was still there was like this nostalgia for like old gangster movies and and uh, you know Cagney and, and Bogart, and you had the Dick Tracy and and the Sting had come out. You know, yeah. there was yeah, all this kind of. But anyway, to get anyway, I had all that kind of in the background. But but I've always had a love for you know this noir sort of thing, and it would start my as a kid and it would go through my twenties and thirties and such. And I really wanted to do, I, I got to a point in my career where I wanted to do it like Dr. Midnight. I wanted to do another large body of work. And I wanted, and, and, and it was kind of like, I wanted to pull a little bit of what I had done on Dr. Midnight and what I had done on Classics Illustrated, which was adapt, you know, I wanted to do an adaptation and I wanted to stick with that kind of noir thing. And so it just seemed like I was like, I want to do like a noir adaptation of some sort. And I knew Ted, Ted Adams that at the time was running IDW. And he, I had started doing work for them, doing covers. And like Phoenix Without Ashes with Harlan yeah. and uh, a number of other licensed products. And at the, bo- at, at, at the bottom of it all, I wanted to eventually do a, a, a long, you know, like a, a full-size graphic novel. Yeah. And they had had uh, great success with the Parker books, 
with yes. uh, Darwin Cook. With Darwin, yeah, amazing, yeah. amazing. And, and, you know, I think it's important to note here, a lot of people, I mean, Darwin was a phenomenal talent and, and, and those books were amazing. But what was really amazing, what I guess, I don't know if people realize this now, but what's so remarkable about, in addition to so many other things about Darwin's work was that first Parker book is really, in my mind, I think it's one of the first hardcover mainstream popular, like mainstream popular graphic novels in terms of the accessibility it had that was based on just, just a genre, you know, you know, where it wasn't a biographical or, or where it was like something, something genre related. And it was, it, it, it was a mainstream breakout and it was a hardcover format. And so I think Darwin really is, is one of the original pioneers of the modern, uh, modern mainstream graphic novel format. You know, when yeah. you go to the library and you see all these rows of graphic hardback novels, I really think Parker is one of the, one of the key focal points that started all this, you know? So, well, I, so that, I, com- I complete, I hard agree with you on that point, mate. Big time. Okay. Yeah. And so I think that he really deserves a lot of credit, him and Scott Dunbeer and, and the guys that, you know, and, and Ted and all those guys uh, uh, and Chris uh, Ryle and all of them that, that got all together and made this thing happen. So, so, you know, Darwin had done a number of them at that point. And I had spoken with Ted about doing something noir related. And Ted had suggested, I had, I had suggested uh, Lawrence Block to me. He had had the ability, he had the, uh, ability to get the, the rights to it. And he had mentioned Matthew Scudder. And I had I was familiar with Scudder since the 80s. And yeah. because that's when he first became very well known. And and I thought, and he was like, well, that's something I can do. And I thought, yeah, that's something I'd like to try, you know. And so they kind of they kind of left it to me, my editor, Tom Waltz and Chris and uh, Ted, they kind of left it to me to pick which book to do. And so I looked at all the books and I, I just, you know, I think Tom was under the initial, initial impression. I would just start with the first one, but my thought was, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that, you know, just in case we do just one of these, at least for starters to start with the book. And I just kept coming back to 8 million ways to die, which is actually the fifth in the series. Yeah. And I just was like, I just don't see any way. I just, we have, I have to do this book. I mean, this has to be the one of the series. And then, you know, I can adapt the others, you know, work around yeah. and all that. But to me, this was the starting point, was was the uh, 8 Million Ways to Die. Because it's a transformative moment in Scudder's life, isn't it? Yes. Eight ways to yeah. Die. yeah. And it's so funny because, so, you know, I, I was like, well, this is the one I want to do. And they were like, you know, they I did some sample pages to show to Lawrence's agent and Lawrence. And I was like, oh, boy. You know, I hope this all works out. And they came back and said, great. And Because Block was a, a graphic novel skeptic before you did this yes, book. Yeah. And, I mean, and, you, you've achieved something absolutely major because I've seen him write numerous words about how he doesn't really get graphic novels prior to working with you on this. It was and, funny because I, I read some interviews with him before online, you know, and I was yeah. like, well, one thing I'm not going to do is, is bother Lawrence, you know, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, like, right. you know, and I, and I was, I, yeah, I was, I was fairly intimidated to be yeah. honest, with you, you know, because so I, I, I don't think he even, I think he might be the one person who on the face of the earth, who didn't particularly like Darwin's, Parker books. I mean, you know, he's an army of one in that respect because everybody thinks they're like a work of genius. I did not, I did not know that. But I, I, 
It's it might be not that I've seen him say I don't like it. I think I might have seen him say I just don't give a toss about this. It's not my thing. He I I think initially he had uh, great skepticism about it until until I was finally finished with this and he saw yeah. how it turned out and then yeah. that was that that all changed. So so you know I got the go ahead and I, it was real. Fu- it was funny. I remember I got the go ahead. We had a little meeting on the phone and it was like okay you know and I was like great. You know, because I was so eager to do like I wanted to do like, yeah, you know, I wanted to like take everything I'd learned and, you know, put it into this. And I'll never forget. I remember I went for a walk and I got halfway around the block and I stopped right in the middle of the uh, sidewalk. And I was like, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was like, because, you know, the enormity of it suddenly. And then I followed that up with I remember reading it was I was working on something else at the time and it was real late at night. And I was like, I got to start reading this, uh, rereading this. And I start. I read the first twenty pages of the book, and I went and set. I went and laid down, and then I got back up again. I'm like, I can't stop reading, you know. And I yeah. was like, oh my! And I and it just dawned on me as I got deeper and deeper into it. I'm like, and it was it was a it was a great it was a great feeling because it was like this is not going to be like adapting a caper book or you know a tough guy book or you know, people getting, you know, punched through walls or anything like that. This is a book about everything. This is about like life, death, you know, uh, addiction, struggle, you know, you know, the human condition, the whole everything, you know, and it's old. It's, and it just, it just struck me that, that this, I, I know everybody, I know people love the Lawrence Block Scudder series and it's, it's great. There's no doubt about it, but there is something I feel about this book as you said, that's transformative. I feel yeah. like it's a standalone piece and I feel like it is just, there is something about it that I think is, is it's just a, it's just a something different. And, yeah. and so, and so that being said, you know, it definitely, it definitely tuned me in a different direction on, you know, what I was going to be doing with it, but it was really a blessing because again, I keep coming back to that writing is everything. I mean, you can, have great art movies can have great sets but it's like you got to have solid writing and i think everything kind of it's the foundation that everything can be built on and the writing in this was so great and the dialogue was so fantastic that you know it was a different kind of playground so to speak you know but it was it was so it was so challenging and in such a, a positive way in terms of how do I interpret this stuff into the comic format? So there were just, it just was the beginning of a long path of, of figuring out how I was going to tell the story in a comic format. So much like the, as I told you before, it was, and again, the, at this point I was living in a very large old apartment with high ceilings and I had all these big blank walls. So it was out with the brown mailing paper again. <laughs> I photocopied. I photocopied the whole book, and I know this sounds funny, but it's like I photocopied the whole book, and I had uh, huge chunks of it up in sections up on the wall, like all four walls. And and what I was trying to do was I was trying to get to the heart of what would come out visual, what would come out of looking at all the writing, what would come out visually as the direction to go to in telling the story. And I would underline in red, I would take a ruler and, and red Prismacolor and underline what I thought were key points. Well, I started underlining every single sentence. <laughs> I'm like, this is going to be a 400-page graphic novel. I only had 130 pages to work with. So, you know, it got to be very challenging. 
but but as funny as it sounds, as I had all these all these pages up on the wall and I kept looking at them, certain paragraphs started pulling themselves out apart from others, and and then I started to be able to like connect sections and. I actually started reading up and, and studying a little bit about like movie adaptations of novels yeah. and, and how they would cut certain characters and certain scenes. And, and, and it was a great learning process. And I really learned to respect the art of adaptation. Again, I had done it with the classics illustrated, but with, but in this, it's like, there's, a, it's really funny. I, I've gotten to the point where when I watch a movie that's been adapted from a book, there's adaptation where it's where it works off of the original material. And then there are people trying to duplicate scenes from the book. And yeah. it, it it's funny because you can tell because there'll be a moment in the movie and you're like, why is this happening? It, it doesn't quite flow with the rest yeah. of the movie, but it's because they're trying to do something that's in the book, you know, and it's, yeah. it's not a criticism. It, it, it's people trying to be faithful. But there are times where this is, a, it's kind of funny to say this, but by being faithful is sometimes leaving things out. Yeah. You know, that, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there was a lot of that process. So really the, the, really the biggest challenge was initially was really getting, getting the actual script put together, you know, getting it to yeah. where it fit within 130 pages and also, you know, certain certain scenes had to be cut, certain characters had to be cut, and getting it all to where I felt like it had a flow and how I was going to tell the story. And I had the idea to do it in part sequentially and part combination of large images and then large, large blocks of text. Because I wanted it to be not just a, a comic, but like like a book, like where it was like you actually, you couldn't just read it in an hour, you know, yeah. just it because I felt like, you know, it's going to cost, you know, a certain amount of money and it's hardcover and it's, you know, I wanted people to get their money's worth. You know, I wanted to get them to have something that they could, they could read over a period of time. So, so I felt like I did not feel constrained in that somebody needs to flip through this. You know, I figured it would be something you'd want to take time with. So want to savor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I thought, I thought about the whole concept of you know, of, of trying to stretch out of, of the, of the format to, to try to work out the, the way that the time would pass between the panels, the way time would pass between those blocks of copy with the single illustrations and, and, but at the same time, give it all kind of a flow. And it sounds a little bit, I guess it sounds a little bit vague, but it is kind of a way of trying to merge pictures and, and pictures and words and it's not like a movie, you know, I know a lot of people, a lot of people now that I run into, I, I notice there's a lot of habits. Sometimes people are like, they try to write uh, uh, comic scripts as though they're for movies or it's like a movie, but movie time and, and book time are two different times. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, so go, anyway. something that I was really struck by with 8 Million Ways to Die is I think specifically about this point, I, I think that your handling of time and the temporal element to telling that story are r- highly resonant to me. Of uh, I think the only other person that I've seen do it as well as you do it is, in fact, the, the master of that, which is Eisner at his peak between like 46 and 50. 
during that period of time where it's him and it's it's Abe Kanigson on the letters. There's some brilliant, you know, experiments about time compression and the pacing that he does. And and what you achieved on that level felt very Eisnerian to me. And uh, yeah, it was very resonant of that kind of work, if that makes sense to you, John. Well, I appreciate that. That's a very kind thing to say. I was going to say, going back to my childhood, one of the watermark moments along with discovering like Walter and, and Howard's work was was when I saw the first issue of the Warren Spirit. On uh, the yeah, man, brilliant. I picked that up and I took, I first off, again, back then, you didn't know these things were coming out. It just happened to be up on the stands. And I was shocked because I knew about it, the Spirit from the great comic book heroes by Jules Pfeiffer and Stranko's History of the Comics. So to see an actual Spirit comic yeah. was, was a shocker. And uh, it was all in black and white. And, and I took that, I took that home and I must've reread, I just re- reread it all night. I mean, I, yeah. I, it was, I was just electrified. Yeah. You know? and I thought it was one of the greatest. It's still one of the greatest number one comics I ever picked. up. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so to me, it was like, yeah, I mean, this is how it's done, you know? And it's funny because there was only one other time I had kind of an experience like that was again, I, I was actually not interested in comics all that much. I was, I had just moved out of the house. I was working at the graphic studio and I was going out to, you know, see the bands and such. And, you know, this idea of doing this, this comic was still kind of fulminating in the back of my head. But I remember stopping by a 7-Eleven on the way back from going out. And it was late at night and there was still spinner racks at that time. And again, I, I wasn't buying any comics. I would pick up an occasional heavy metal, but I wasn't buying any Marvel or DC. But I saw this Daredevil comic in the rack. And it was like, the, it was called The Kingpin Must Die. And, you know, I had the giant <laughs> yeah. out of it. And I was like, what's, this is not, again, this is not normal. What is yeah. this, right? And I opened it up and it was a cutaway shot of Daredevil, like tied up in a sewer line, you know, below the city. And it looked exact. it looked like a new wave Will Eisner yeah. splash page. And I just bought it on the spot. And it was, and again, it was this moment of this, like, oh, wow, this guy. And that was my first experience of Frank Miller. Yeah, probably. And at that moment, it was like, wow, again, it, Frank had that same thing, you know, where he had that sense of time and layout yeah. and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, that was a big influence on me. And, and definitely when I was working on this as well, that was another moment. But, but, but the thing about working on Lawrence's book is, is that Lawrence, there's such a delicacy of, of, of human, the human, again, I, not to be repetitive, but of the human condition and, yeah. and, and life. And, and it really hit home to me, the book, the way it was written, it really, I had spent a lot of time in, in the DC area and around cities. And I'd actually spent a little time in New York and, and, you know, it's, it really kind of, it really kind of, I thought hit a nerve about how the city has got a funny pull on people where it has a tendency to make you feel like you can't be anywhere else. You have to stay in the city, no yeah. matter what. No matter how desperate your your situation becomes, no matter how hard it is, you cannot leave the city. It is like it is like all that matters. If you leave the city, somehow you'll 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 disappear. Yeah. You'll you won't survive. You know. So, you know, to survive in the city, it's like it's like anything goes. You know, like by any means necessary, survive the city. So there's this complete moral detachment. That comes with surviving in the city to make the ends meet to stay in the city, you know, 
And I thought that the book in the most extreme manner touched on that. And I, and I, I thought, again, that's, again, where this book has so many different levels. And, and I wanted to kind of get through that too. And I, and I thought it was so, and again, you've got the, this, this, uh, the main character is he's completely focused on how dangerous the city is. And he's completely focused on, you know, he's obsessed with reading the newspaper and, you know, about how everybody's dying and various crimes and freak accidents and such. And, and yet he is completely oblivious to the fact that he's slowly dying from his addiction. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he's aware of it, but there's this kind of thing where he kind of feels like, you know, it's like somehow by reading these stories, you know, about all these other people's like problems, you know, and again, it's that whole thing of like, well, it's the city. This is how we yeah. survive in the city. And I just thought that that was, that was so brilliant. And again, that's my interpretation. That might yeah. not be exactly what Lawrence had in mind, but that was, a, that was another element that really appealed in telling the story and all these different characters and such. So. I, th- I think that's fascinating because I think I'm really glad you shared that with me because that really comes through, I think, in your adaptation of the novel. And, and I, I think it, w- one of the many things I love about it, and it, it's really illuminating you, you, you going through that because uh, it, it, it explains a lot to me about, you know, the, the final version of the tale that you told. One of the things, one of the many things I love about the book is your physical representation of Scudder. Because the minute I saw your version of Scudder on the page, I, I thought, that's Matt Scudder straight away. Having been somebody who's read, well, as you know, read all the books. And, and I think you really coalesced in my mind how he looked. And, and it's so rare that you see an adaptation of something and somebody manages to come up with almost a recognisable archetype of who this character is, of who a character is, because many, many PI characters are framed in such a way that it's open to the visual imagination of the reader. That's why, you know, say Hammer, for example, in the Hammer novels never gets facially described. Many of these guys never get described in a way, but your, your Scudder, as soon as I saw him, I thought, man, you've totally nailed him visually. It, it was amazing to me. It was, kind of a res- it was kind of a revelation when I opened the book up. Well, well thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. It was, yeah, it was funny. You know, when I started the process, you know, Lawrence does not go into uh, a lot of deep description of some yeah. of the characters' appearances, you know, so it was yeah, kind of right. open for that. So, you know, I kind of had to cast you know, the characters. And I had various, various, you know, little bits and pieces of, of actors and, and people that I've known and, and, and just like, I would just kind of put it in a blender visually yeah. to come up with it. And, and Scudder was really a challenge. Scudder was a real challenge to me because there is something about this character where he is not necessarily uh, hard as nails yeah. You know, like a like a Mike Hammer. He is he's almost kind of God, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but kind of a almost like kind of a cipher. He kind of uh, is he's kind of uh, this uh, this character that's there. You know, it's almost yeah, like yeah. A, that's that's in the city. It's almost yeah. like he's part of the city. You know, and, and yeah. as Lawrence has said, the city is very much one of the main characters of the book. Yeah, and Scudder is part of the city, and and but he is not a moral. You know, so but he's not. But he's not necessarily somebody who's going to be knocking people through, you know, through yeah. glass, wall, you know, glass bar walls or, or, or glass windows or whatever. So, you know, I was trying to figure out 
a way to make him look somewhat stern, but at the same time vulnerable, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think one of my visual references at the time was, again, I was thinking of various movie actors from different time periods and such. And I've always kind of liked Richard Widmark, you know, yeah, yeah. because Richard Widmark has that kind of vulnerability. You know, I mean, you got to start off playing these, you know, scary, the scary guy in Kiss of Death or whatever. But as his career went on, you know, tell me you, he, tell me you Doug. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And but as his career went on, you know, he became I'm thinking specifically of uh, when he played the cop Madigan. And, you know, yeah. he's, he's got an edge to him, but he's got a vulnerability to him as well. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, maybe I touched a little bit on that, you know, but the thing I like about, about the Scudder character is, is that he's kind of an enigma, he's very much an enigma, you know, and I think that's one of the things I like about him is that I think that Lawrence keeps his character so kind of open that the reader is able to kind of fill in you know, what they get out of the character. I appreciate that you, that you liked my representation of him because I was definitely trying to get a distinctive, him to be distinctive, but at the same time, somewhat distant, you know. Well, and I think you achieved that. I could see from, from the nature of your illustrations, how hard you'd worked on getting on, on walking that, that knife blade and getting him in the space that you did. I, I, this might seem like a very small detail, well, it might somebody listening to this, but it was key for me. I thought you got his hairline just right. Yeah. <laughs> that, it, because he's a man of a certain age. He's not a kid, you know, right. so he's not got a full head of hair, but he's not bald. You know, he's, he's kind of, his hairline felt just right to me. I thought that really was, for me, was the key to how you totally framed his face so well, because it's like, man, you know, he doesn't look too young and virile, but he doesn't look, it's too old and knackered either. He looks convinced, you know, he, can, he looks convincingly weathered by his experience while still being somebody who can take care of himself. Well, thanks. I really appreciate that. I, I, I know what you're saying about the detail, but it, it is funny because again, he's, I think the character's in his early forties in yeah. this particular, the Scudder for people who are not aware of the series, Matthew Scudder ages in real time. So yeah. He's in his 40s and the 80s of the last, and he ages, you know, through the 90s, 2000s, uh, et cetera. But at this point in the series, he's in his early 40s. So I was trying to visualize where he would be at in his life. You know, he did. He does have a sense of physicality. He does have some strength. And I was trying to get it so he didn't look too young, you yeah. know, but I didn't want him to look too haggard either, yeah. you know. And so, you know, a lot of times when people are doing detective characters, they have like, you know, this, this, you know, huge head of hair and yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah right. Exactly. Down widow's peak jutting down. Yeah. To the, yeah right. Almost the bridge Square of the jewel. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? So, so, but I, thanks. And, and, you know, that, that went on with all the other characters. I was definitely trying to be like, again, it's, it's a comic. It's a comic book at its heart, but at the same time, I did want a sense of reality to how the characters would look, you know, the yeah. men and women. And and I would and I was trying to visualize, you know, that through little details. Like the and, and it's funny with uh, Scudder, for example, with the way he dressed, because again, it wasn't something that was very specific in, in uh, Lawrence's writing. What I was trying to visualize with his, with how he dressed in his hat and his trench coat and all that, what I was trying to get was, was that he is, you know, he's broken at this point in his life and his, is, you know, his, what he's got going on, he's, he's, he's broken, you know, he's, he's 
really in uh, bad shape. And he's, he's, he's kind of working off of kind of a broken past. He was, you know, he was a police detective and he's, he's had an accident where, you know, a young girl got killed in a crossfire, you know, his wife, he's left his wife and kids, you know, and he's gone from this kind of like just outside of the city family life to this, you know, living in hell's kitchen and kind of broken down. And he's really kind of on his last legs, but at this point in the book series. So I was kind of visualizing that at this point, he was wearing like what he would used to wear when he was a detective on the force in the, in the late 70s. So he's wearing like his police outfit, you know, the yeah, hat yeah. and the coat, yeah. because it's almost like he's, it's all that he's got left is this memory. And, and actually, and again, talking about hairlines and details and such, if you'll notice, when you get to the end of the book and he has his his moment of clarity, he and he the case and when the case is over and he has his moment of clarity, he's not wearing the hat anymore for the rest yeah. of the book. It's like the hat is off and it's like it's and I know it's like a little thing, but it's like it's like, it, you know, my hope is to eventually do more books in the series, but he would not be wearing the hat anymore. After yeah. That. And again, it's yeah. a little thing, but it's just like that was part of his past. And he's realized that it's far, far past him. And to let go, you know. Yeah, so. I, 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 love the de- the amount of detail that you've put into that, and I, I really feel it as well. I really, as a, as a big fan of the character, as I say, your adaptation really, really spoke to me. In terms of, if if you would like to adapt other Scudder novels, what would be at the top of your list? Well, my my idea would be, and I've had this for some time now is I would like to do the adaptations. I mean, you know, it'd be great to do all of them, of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but I had a specific idea to do them in sets of three. Yeah. And the first set would be to, I would really like to follow him through different periods in his life Yeah. and not just him, but New York city. Yeah. So, so this book, 8 million ways to die, you know, is 1982. It's Scudder in 1982, New York. And then I would like to follow that up with Everybody Dies. Uh, yeah. Okay. 1998 New York. Yeah. And this is where, you know, he's, and, and that is, you know, there's a lot of things about, there's a, he is just entering his 60s. Yeah. And he is coming to terms with, he feels like he has, you know, gone from this incredibly chaotic life he had in 8 Million Ways to Die. He's now, he's settled down. He's, He's still working all these incredibly violent cases as, as, you know, because that's his job. But but he's married. You know, he's he feels like a sense of, you know, of of, I don't know if complacency is the right word, but everything's kind of settled. You know, he's 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 instead of being unlicensed, he's got his detective license. So everything is kind of set in place. And it's all like kind of it also hooks into, you know, his uh, recovery that he's come from from this this first book. So. It, what I find interesting about it, everybody dies is, is all that is taken away. Yeah. You know, he loses uh, some major characters in his life. I don't want to give it all away. He loses a lot of major characters in life. And he is challenged with whether or not he is going to keep his license in order to continue forward and yeah. his, and his mission as it were. And if that's a necessity. And I love that. I love the idea. And again, I love this about Lawrence's work is, is that it's got a moral base to it, but the moral base sometimes goes outside of the lines of, you know, the law. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a, and I, I, you know, this is a thing that, you know, it's, this is a, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting area to tread, 
So I like that that conflict is in there. And then in Drop of the Hard Stuff would be the third book. So it'd be, ah, right. and, yeah. and Drop was the last full novel that he yeah. did with Scudder. And that's in, and that's post 9-11. And it's, it's him coming into his 70s and uh, his late 70s at that time. And it's got a lot. And it actually, most of that book is a, is a flashback to the first year anniversary after yeah. he, so to me it would be like a full circle yeah you know, right that it would come so those so that those i i have really thought about that and i thought they would make a great trilogy the three books together so you would have eight million ways to die everybody dies and then a drop of the hard stuff so i do have a specific i love that outline and i can i can actually understand why you've put that together i think you're thinking creatively is is very clear there and i really hope that you you get the chance to do it because I was thinking in my mind, oh, what would I like to see you do, and came up with two completely different answers. Which is, well, what, what ones are you interested so, in? So, I, I, in terms of, uh, I think books that I think might be a challenge to adapt, but if you got it right, I think with your style and your take on the character, you could do really well. Is I would like to see you. I would like to see you adapt uh, when the sacred gym mill closes. Which is a very interesting. That's a, that's an immediate flashback novel after he sobers up to his drink, and it goes back to his drinking days. Just because it's such an interesting story about the pernicious effect of alcohol and drinking culture and all that kind of stuff, in amid all the violence and the, the the meta story that's going on. I really love that book. I also really love a long line of dead men. I think that's uh, that's a very interesting story. But I, I mean, I can't beat your. I can't beat your plan. I think your plan is absolutely right. But at the point where you, you know, before you stop adapting these novel, uh, uh, novels, if I was going to be selfish, I'd go, yeah, I'd love to see you do when the sacred gym will closes, and a long line of dead man. I love both of those books. I, I, I love I'll have end a long line of dead man, and sacred gem mill is like right there. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like that's I. That's a, in fact that is somewhere in between. Maybe that would be one of the first three, or yeah. that would be the first of the second set of three. So it's like, believe me, it's it's a it, real. I mean, it's, it, it's a great book. I think if you've not read it, you'll really enjoy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Long no, line no, of I, I, I love it. I yeah. love it. I think yeah. it's again just like Eight Million Ways to Die. And I again, I love. I have not read Long Line of Dead Now. I have read quite yeah. a few of them. I will check that out. But again, when the Sacred Gem Mill closes, that is a deep book. Yeah, yes, absolutely. There's a lot of things in there. And I think that, and I, I think you'll agree with me. It, you really get into that book, really gets into. I thought that book was really a deep thing about friendships and, yeah, and, for sure. and, and how friendships go bad. And, and I thought it was very, very personal. And again, it, it's, it's real. I mean, it's like, that is a real, that book feels very real. Those people feel very real and the interactions they have with each other feel very real and very, very much particular to that environment, New York city in that period, yeah. I think. Yeah. So, so I agree. That would be a, that would be a great one to do. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So I, I definitely look up this other one too. Oh, long line dead man. You'll enjoy that mate. And you know, it's uh, it's, it's got a very, very interesting plot. And one that uh, one that kind of affects Scudder's life, kind of moving forward to, in, in in a particular kind of way. Yeah, I think I think you'll enjoy it. And to close out on this discussion of you know your beautiful adaptation of Eight Million Ways to Die, to have to do all that work and then to have it to be to be so positively received 
with, you know, almost wall-to-wall rave reviews and for it to be embraced by Block himself and then to partner up with Block doing your signings and what have you. That must have felt amazing, mate. It was, yeah, it's indescribable. I mean, it really was, uh, it was, I'll tell you, it was funny. I really didn't want to bother Lawrence while I was working on this. I was like, you know, I had felt like I've got to do what I can on this. And and I really, I was, and I felt like I had, I had done the book fairly well, but I was like, you know, he, you know, he's busy with what it is he's doing. I'm going to work on this. And I got it all done and we got it through the letter and, and I'll never forget this. It was really funny. My editor was like, it was a Friday. And he contacted me and he's like, well, we've sent it off to Lawrence. And I was like, oh, great. And, you know, I was really excited. And about 15 minutes later, I was like, oh, my God, what if he doesn't like it? You know, (laughs) I was like, it never even occurred to me. Right. And I thought and I got this just huge dread, like, oh, my God, you know, And, and it just it just was the funniest feeling because I had gotten so caught up in the adaptation, you know, and I thought, oh, yeah, Lawrence is gonna like, you know, you know, what's he going to think, you know? And it was a long weekend, man. I, you know, cause I it was like, it. I sent it out on Friday and, you know, I tried not to think about it, but then Sunday morning, I'll never forget this. It was Sunday morning or, and, and I got a friend request from Lawrence and it was just, you know, my heart kind of jumped a little bit. And, uh, and then, you know, he, you know, Lawrence speaks very, very briefly you know it was a very short sentence and i was like well i hope you enjoyed it and he's like said something along the lines i thought it was brilliant and it was just the biggest exhale i in my adult <laughs> life <you know? laughs> just kind of like oh and then you know he he suggested the uh, the signing at mysterious bookshop in new yeah. york and uh, then set up the thing with midtown and so yeah i mean i mean going actually what was so funny about it was, is I hadn't been to New York in a long time. I had spent a good amount of time there around 2000, uh, 1999, 2000. And I had only been up there once or twice. And I had not been up there for almost a decade. I think it had been. So, you know, I, I drove up there and I realized it was so funny because I had spent I had gotten so deep into the, the research and reference and drawing New York City that it was almost eerie to be walking on the streets of the city because I've been drawing it for so long, you know? But the fact is, is that to not only be walking the streets of New York again after finishing the book, but actually going to the mysterious Otto Penzler store, you know, which is this really world-renowned bookstore. And then and then Lawrence, and Lawrence showed up and, and was so, uh, Lawrence was there, his daughters were there, and they were so nice and gracious, and Lawrence was so kind that it really was—it really was an amazing experience. It really was, and I'll—I'll I'll never forget. After we did the signing, I was—we were gonna. Let's see. I can't remember. I was going where I was getting to. I needed to ride the subway, and Lawrence was like, "Well, that's my—that's the same line I'm going." And so I ended up on the subway with Lawrence, which was just, you know, him and I were standing together and uh, there's a photo, actually a buddy that was with us took the photo, but it was so funny because I had spent so much time drawing Scudder sitting in the subway, you know, down and out in like 1982, New York. And it never occurred to me that Lawrence and I would be together, you know, talking a little bit, you know, about the project literally on the New York subway. So it was really a, it was really a neat moment. So, so, so all of that has been really great. 
And I've been very fortunate because, you know, I've met a couple of really neat people through this, through the mystery, you know, like mystery writers, like Wallace Strobe was there that night. Yeah, who's a fantastic writer. And he's talked to me about doing some things with his character. And also I did a Go-Go's, a Murder of Go-Go's uh, benefit mystery book with yeah. the Holly West was the editor on that. And, I've, you know, we've gotten to know each other. And, and, I, and I have to say, it's really opened up. Uh, a world of, of, of new uh, friends and acquaintances. So I'm very, very grateful. And really, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Lawrence embraced it so much yeah. and talks about it so well, and then invited me back on board with Subterranean Press to do the uh, cover for the, for the uh, Scudder short story collection, Night in the Music, which yeah. is coming out in the fall. Which, so, looks, which just looks so beautiful, mate. It really thanks. does. Thanks. Thanks. So so, I, you know, I feel really blessed in all of this. And I'm really grateful to the guys at IDW, you know, my editor and, and Ted and, and Chris and everyone, you know, for giving me the opportunity, you know, to do this book right, you know, so, yeah. so I'm eternally grateful. And, you know, I have to say, I'm so grateful that we were able to get this out and promote it and, you know, you know, and all that. So, yeah. so it's all been a very, very good experience for sure. So. That's wonderful, and and no better place to close out, actually, John, than, than on on all the positive impact that that amazing piece of work has had. I can't wait for that edition of Night in the Music, which I already own in its original version, but I've I have undoubtedly pre-ordered the uh, the new version. I can't wait, and I, I'm just so glad you're in this space. I can't wait to see what you do with Lawrence's material next, and I can't wait to see what you're working on next. And Thanks so much uh, for giving up this time for our conversation. I have really enjoyed it, mate. Oh, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm flattered to be a part of your show. And, and I just really, it's, it's great to be able to talk about all this. And, and thank you for having me on. Much appreciated. You've been listening to Hard Agree. This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan, and our theme music, Golden, was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band, Danio. Hard Degree is a production of The Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner.